Let's pray before we open the word together this morning. Our Father, we are thankful for this eternal word. We're thankful that we have a strong foundation on which to stand. Thankful that we have a clear voice to listen to. We're thankful for the men and women and children that have passed this on to our generation, some giving their very lives. We pray that we would not treat it tritely this morning. That we would hear your voice, that we would know that it is the voice of life this morning. And that it would resonate in our hearts and our minds and our spirits to your glory and to your praise. Pray all of this in the strong name of Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Jude, verses 3 and 4 this morning. This is the holy, inerrant, sufficient word of God. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Favorite city in the world is the city of Edinburgh. I've been there three times. Uh, I love it. It is uh, a clean city. It's a beautiful city. There are all kinds of new buildings that are glorious. What I love, though, is it's kind of a city where the old meets the new, and there are all of these wonderful old buildings. I love it, though, especially uh, because of the rich Scottish Presbyterian history that is in that city. Uh, you, you almost can't walk a block without coming to a corner and there is a large stone edifice and this giant church that just seems fixed there. And, and its, its spire reaches up and it just kind of pierces the, the sky above. And you can't help but when you stand before one of these great stone edifices, you, your eyes are just drawn up. You just have to look up. But it's not just when you're outside. When you go inside one of those churches and you walk in, you, you can't help but your, your eyes are lifted up. They were built not like the modern boxes of today that would disappear in our generation. They, they were built to last, to be permanent. And they were grand so that when you were in them and when you stood before them, you felt very little. So that you would remember that God is very great. I uh, 
can walk in a number of those churches in Edinburgh and tell you the history of different pastors that served there and different congregations that filled those buildings and different missionaries that were sent out, different awakenings that, that happened in those buildings. And when I'm walking to Edinburgh, I, I am I'm filled with delight thinking about all of those things. Incredibly encouraging to me. It's equally discouraging. Because most of those churches are no longer churches. They're community centers, or they're art venues, or they're historic halls, or they're just boarded up. And it didn't just happen. They were lost. They were lost. Jude, in the book of Jude, this is what he is concerned about. The church getting lost. Being lost. This entire letter finds all of what it's about here in verses 3 and 4. He gives us a purpose of the letter in verse 3. He wants them to, quote, contend for the faith. And the cause for the letter is verse 4. He is writing because ungodly false teachers have crept into the church. He doesn't want these churches lost. What I want to do is look at verse 4 together first, and then we'll jump back up to verse 3. So what I want to do is look at verse 4 together first, and this cause for this letter. The cause is ungodly teachers have come into the church. These certain people... Jude says, and as one commentator alluded, he said, ah, with that kind of language, you can almost feel his palpable kind of disregard for these teachers. Certain people who have crept in unnoticed and teaching a false gospel. They've come in unnoticed. If you think about church history and You look back over previous generations, you even look at the church in our own day, the church is hmm, pretty regularly on guard against what's going going on in the world. Alarm bells start going off and we're on guard. But often what happens is, is that from within, like a Trojan horse, unnoticed, false teaching begins to weave its way through a congregation, through a denomination, even through a country. And the church is lost. This is Jude's concern. He's watching it happen. He's watching it happen in the first century church. People, he says, who were long ago designated for condemnation were teaching false things. And we'll get to that when we get to verses 5-10, through 10, what he means by long ago designated for condemnation. But notice, what I want you to notice is what they were doing. What they were actually Teaching Two things, Jude says. They were perverting the grace of our God into sensuality. And second, they were denying Jesus Christ as Master and Lord. So first, they were perverting the grace of our God into sensuality. That is, they were living as if there was no moral code for the Christian life. 
They were against the law, what we call in theology antinomians. They were anti-namos, anti-against, namos, the law. They were against the law. They thought because the gospel message is that you and I can be saved by grace, salvation is by grace alone, that that meant that once you received that grace alone, you could live any way you wanted to. In this case, they wanted a perverted, sensual life. And by this, Jude is saying they were denying the faith. We're denying the faith. Listen, part of our faith is living to the praise and glory of Christ. Paul talks about this in Romans 1. He talks about about the obedience of faith. For as the Apostle says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Our truth, gospel truth, is not simply justification. It is also tied together with sanctification. Jude is telling them this is false teaching of the deadliest kind. If you are saved in Jesus, you are saved to live for Jesus. Freedom in Christ is not license to sin. We don't sin. That grace may abound. May it never be, Paul said. If that's our understanding of grace, then we have a misunderstanding of grace. He bought us with His precious blood. We've been united to Him. We are a temple of the Spirit. We are a child of the Heavenly Father. And so now because of all that, ah, we want to become more like the Savior who bought us. We want to give Him glory and praise with who we are. Not beyond this. I can just for a moment... uh, press a little bit, tell you a personal pastoral concern along these lines that I have in our own circles. I think just watching our reformed world over these, I don't know, last decade or so, it seems to me that there is, there is within our own midst some of this where I in particular see it with people cursing and drinking to excess and laughing about it. The freedom in Christ. Not the sin. No unwholesome thing is to come out of our mouths. We can drink, but not to excess. Be in control of your body by the Spirit. These false teachers, they were teaching a gospel by their words, a false gospel by their words and their living. They were against the law, antinomians. But they weren't only antinomians, they were independents. They were not only against the law, but against being ruled. Jude says, second, they deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. They like the idea of Jesus being their Savior, but not their Master. And this is incredibly instructive. Listen, false teachers always, always, always claim Christ. There is no false teacher who says, listen to me as I talk to you about Christ, though I don't belong to Christ. Christ isn't mine. Every single one represents themselves as belonging to Christ. 
and every heretic. That's true in all of church history. But he wasn't their master. As Jude says, he is our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Some want that weight relieved. And we all want that. You feel the weight of the the guilt of your sin and the burden of that sin. And so, some of those most beautiful words, I think, in all of the Scriptures, or the Lord Jesus says in Matthew 11, we rightfully treasure He, One of my favorite verses, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And, and when we run to Him, we, we receive that rest. He removes that burden. He forgives you your sin. He cleanses you from all unrighteousness. And I desperately need that. But we don't stop there. The Christian life only starts there. The rest of that verse, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Here's the second part. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. We take his yoke upon us, as he says in another passage. He says, if you would be a disciple of mine, you must deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. We follow him. We yield to him as master and lord. We take his yoke upon us. We pick up our cross, and we follow This was the cause, false teaching. Now let's look at the purpose of the letter. Jude says, back to verse 3, he says, contend for the faith. That is, it's not simply enough for you and I to have faith. It's incumbent, Jude says, to contend for the faith. Now when we speak of faith, what often goes to our mind, rightfully so, is Hebrews 11, that great chapter on faith where the writer walks through all of these examples of faith, that hall of fame of faith. And we have that first verse come to our minds, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the belief in things not seen, that exercising of faith, that having faith. But that's not what Jude's talking about here. Jude's not talking about the exercising of faith. He is speaking about the faith. There's an article there. The faith. Our belief. The fixed core to our faith. This is the very thing that we are to contend for. The faith. What does that mean to contend for it? That word contend, the Greek word sounds very similar, the root word sounds very similar to the English word agonize. And it has that kind of sense to it. That you're striving, that you're struggling earnestly, that you're fighting for. Contend for the faith, Jude says. This faith was being lost in their midst because false teachers were subtracting from the faith. This good deposit that they had received from previous generations, even as we confess from Psalm 78 this morning, it's passed on from generation to generation, Lord willing. This good deposit they've received and they were losing it. Losing it. And so he's saying, fight for it. Contend for it. 
It is often lost, always lost in a generation because there is some adding or some subtracting from it. Tend for the faith, Jude says. If we think about those who would subtract, we might think about Paul writing in 1 Corinthians where he gives this great distillation in 1 Corinthians 15 of the core of our gospel message and he says that there are false teachers that are teaching something different. What is it? They're denying the resurrection. They're subtracting. Or you think of addition when he writes in the book of Galatians and he writes about those Judaizers who are coming along and they're talking about the gospel and the need to add circumcision to the gospel message. They're adding Or if you think historically with me, there is subtracting that happens in almost every generation of the church where there is a denial of the sufficiency of Scripture. Or there is a denial of the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ. Or there is a denial of biblical sexual ethics. Or you think of addition historically and the need to walk an aisle to receive the Lord Jesus. Or baptismal regeneration. We're praying to the saints. There's always this danger of adding or subtracting. Now, now here's what you and I have to realize. This doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's not as if somebody is sitting one day in a church and thinks, you know what? Sure would be fun to add something here. You know what? Let's subtract something here. That's not what happens. Almost without fail, it is an attempt to make the Christian faith more palatable in the current cultural context. It's often driven by we want to be better evangelists. We want to be better holders on to the faith. Take away that which is offensive or add to that which would allure the culture around. This is often the motivation of liberalism. But there is the other end of the spectrum though too. Adding or taking away because we think the church needs it to withstand the culture. Just add a little here, add a little there. And that's often the motivation of legalistic fundamentalism. We need this to be a bulwark. It doesn't matter the motivation. Whether you're trying to appease to the culture outside or whether you're trying to be stout against the culture outside. It doesn't matter your motivation. You mess with the Gospel. You've messed with the only thing that is life. Do not add. Do not take away. Jude is clear. This faith was delivered once for all. There is a finality here. Nothing more to add. Nothing to change. It's done. To think differently is to think that you are wiser than God. And this shouldn't need to be said. But it has to be said because it happens in every single generation. Do not listen to those who think they are wiser than God. This gospel, this Christian faith, it worked in the first century. 
You often hear, well, how are we going to reach this generation? We, we need to soften the edge here. But we need to bolster it up from underneath to reach this generation. Listen, it worked in the 1st century. It works in the 3rd century. It worked in the 7th century. It worked in the 12th century. It worked in the 19th century, the 20th century. And it works in the 21st century. Because it's His. He's gifted it to us. It's a glorious message. It doesn't need adapting. You contend for it. When we worship here in spirit and in truth, we're contending for it. You realize you're in the midst of a fight. Our adversary, until our Lord Jesus returns upon the clouds and takes us home, until He does that, our adversary is going to continue Continue to try to get you and I to add or subtract from the gospel because he knows it is life. And he's opposed to your life. And he's opposed to you and I passing this on to the generation after. He's fighting. And here's the key. You're fighting too. The question is just whether you're engaged rightly. You're in this fight. When we worship here in spirit and in truth, we rightfully are engaged in contending. When we teach our children our holy faith without compromise, we are rightfully contending. When you are praying for those who preach and teach, you are rightfully contending. When you are growing in your knowledge and understanding through Bible studies and doctrine studies and prayer groups and personal reading and study, you are rightfully contending. When you're willing to push back on false teaching, you're rightfully contending. When you support faithful ministries, you're rightfully contending. When you support the vision that we talk about here of advancing the mission of Christ by planting good, faithful, biblical churches that by God's grace would last for generations and training up pastors and missionaries and college workers, you are rightfully contending. When you refuse, to listen to untrue voices no matter how clear they are, no matter how loud they are, no matter how comforting they are, when you refuse to listen to them, you are rightfully contending. To contend for the truth, for the faith. We need fighters, Christians who contend, We need to be a church that contends. Or we won't last. This is what's happening there in Psalm 78. Asaph is saying, we won't hide these things from our children. We'll pass it on to the next generation, the mighty works that the Lord has done, that they might set their hope in the Lord. Have it. Don't lose it. And it takes us doing this together, and it takes each of us engaging in it individually, contending for the faith. Closing, let me answer a couple of objections that come to mind when we think about contending for the faith, and then give a handful of quick warnings. A couple of objections. The first objection that comes to mind is that contending sows disunity. Don't the Scriptures talk about the need to be unified, but the church to be one? 
Absolutely. Over and over and over. It is one of the heartbeats of the New Testament. Our Lord Jesus' longest recorded prayer is all about you and I being one with one another, even as the Father and the Son are one. It is to be in the forefront of our minds and in the forefront of our hearts and our interactions with one another that we are seeking in every way to be in unity with one another. It is no small thing, but that's not the reason to not contend. But rather, it is the reason to contend. Look at what's happening here. These false teachers, they've snuck in and they've taught something that is untrue. And that untruth is causing a disruption in the peace of the church. They brought the disunity and now they must be contended with so that the unity is regained and so that it remains. Remember having this conversation with people here at URC years and years ago when we were... Uh, talking about leaving former denomination that this church belonged to. And I remember a handful of individuals cornering me one Sunday and saying, Jason, you all are causing division. Causing division. Speaking about these things, Jesus is all about unity. He is. Absolutely is. But unity rooted in truth. We weren't causing the division. Those who were teaching new things about human sexuality and about officers in the church and about the mission of the church caused the disunity by moving from the faith. Contending was an attempt to maintain the unity, not just with the churches that we are currently in a cultural context with. That is important. But it is beyond that. You and I are to maintain unity with churches through the generations. You sang about that this morning. The church triumphant, all the saints that have come before us and believed this truth. There is one church and we're to be united with them. So we cannot give it up. We cannot soften it. We cannot change it. We cannot add to it. We cannot subtract from it. We contend for it. Second objection. Contending doesn't sound loving. Aren't we supposed to be loving as Christians? Lovers, not fighters. Yes. You love. And if you love, you contend. We lose this truth. We lose what grants life. When we lose this truth, we destine others to dwell in darkness. It is the height of being unloving, to be unconcerned about that which has eternal consequences. That's unloving. In our day and age, there's continual more and more pressure, and there's going to be, and you're going to feel it. You're going to feel it in the workplace. Your children are going to feel it in school. You're going to feel it in every way to embrace sin and to call what is evil good and what is good evil. And there's going to be a call within the church to soften the view on this. 
Faith must change or people in our culture won't accept Christ. It is unloving to embrace or simply smile while others embrace eternal destruction. I can't think of anything more unloving than affirming sin when we have the answer. Christ. If I was this morning to say to each of you, underneath where you're seated right now, there is a paper bag. And in that paper bag is the cure for cancer. Every single one of you would start having people going through your minds. Family, friends, co-workers, neighbors that are struggling with cancer. And you would immediately think of them and what's in that bag. And you wouldn't sit here and open up that bag and go, you know what? I'm going to adjust this a little bit. If it's a cure for cancer, you would run out of here. And you wouldn't begin to contemplate and begin to rationalize and say, ah, they seem pretty content in their cancer. They seem pretty happy. You wouldn't say, well, you know, they, they seem comfortable. They've identified as a person with cancer and I don't want to upset them. You wouldn't do that because you know cancer is seeking to kill them. That's just mortal. Sin is seeking to kill. And it takes no prisoners. We have the answer. Son of God who came into the world for sinners and lived a holy, perfect life and died an atoning death and was buried and raised on the third day and ascended to the right hand of God the Father who reigns even now and is going to return upon the clouds and bring us home. You have the answer. Unloving. Subtract from it or add to it. Of course, great love chapter should come to mind. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. It should not be rude. It should not be unkind. It should not be arrogant. But if I'm more concerned about giving offense than I am about the eternal destination of a soul, then I'm not loving. Never be ashamed, as we said last week, of calling yourself a Christian. Equally, never be ashamed of owning the entire Christian faith. It's life. Life. Now having said that, let me give you four quick warnings to close this morning. I'll start with the C. Contend without being contentious. Contend without being contentious. We are not to love fighting. We are not always to be looking for a fight. A critical spirit is not a godly spirit. Notice Jude did not want to write as he wrote to them. He wanted to write about, he says, quote, our common salvation. It was only because of the disruption 
that he felt compelled to enter the fray in this letter. He is not contentious for the faith. He is contending for the faith. It is godly. It is godly, hear me, it is godly to be a reluctant fighter. We only contend because we have to. We are, as the Apostle said, we are to remain at peace with all men as we are able. Being contentious is not being faithful. The critic is not faithful. Contending reluctantly, but with no less resolve, is being faithful. Second, contend without being conceited. Contend without being conceited. Pride has no place in the Christian. You and I only know what we know by His grace. (laughs) You and I only hold on to what we hold on to by His grace. To never be looking down upon others. None of us are the Savior of the world. Christ chooses to use us, but He does not need us. Do you contend without being conceited? Third, contend without being callous. Some contend. Because frankly, they're just an angry person. Seldom do they see it. And usually, these people admire strength, they admire outspokenness, they admire fight, but they tend to skip over equally important Christian virtues, meekness and gentleness, as we'll discuss tonight. Those are equally important. And if you are not marked by those, this makes for callous interactions with others. We contend for truth because we love people. He said, love your enemies. We never contend without tears. When the Lord Jesus is looking out over the city of Jerusalem, He says, look, you are the city that kills the prophets. He knows it's the city that is going to murder Him, crucify Him. And then what does He do? He weeps over it. He loves people. And He wants people to have this truth. We're not callous toward them in our contending. We want others to know, as we looked at last week, the joy and comfort and hope of being called and loved and kept by such a gloriously good and beautiful Savior. Finally, contend without being cynical. Contend without being cynical. There's some of us that are half-glass-full people. Some of us are half-glass-empty people. Some of us are what-glass people. Oh. It feels like everything is going to be horrible all the time. And everybody's motives in the church are wrong. Except, of course, mine. There's no place for cynicism in the church. This is not what Jude had in mind 
We're to consider others better than ourselves, Paul says, and even when we see error, we as contenders are to be gracious and joyful and hopeful and expectant that the Lord Jesus, who is Lord and Master, will work. He reigns. There is nothing and there is no one that is beyond His redeeming. I was just talking to someone after the service. They said, oh, I was just in Edinburgh last week and he, he was talking about how, oh, how devastated he was seeing all these churches. And I was saying, ah, oh, but brother, we pray for them. The Lord can turn that entire city into a beacon of light again. He said it would take quite a work. I said it would. And he can do it like that. Like that. We're not cynics. When I'm in Edinburgh, I often think of these once faithful gathering places with faithful congregations that are no longer. It's a good reminder. It's a good reminder that past faithfulness is not guarantee of future faithfulness. It's a good reminder that filled pews today does not mean that we will be present here tomorrow. It's a good reminder that beautiful and grand buildings are not church what was lost there can be lost here the presbyterian church in america is not beyond this university reformed church is not beyond this your family is not beyond this so we contend with love we contend for the faith so arise, O church. We put our armor on. We arise. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for men and women and children, many of them having given their lives. We might even sit and stand here this morning being recipients of such a glorious gospel. We thank you for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. May we be preservers of it in our generation, lovers of it in our generation. We might affect the world around us, that we might live more to the glory of our Savior, and that we might pass it on to the generation to follow. Pray all of this in the strong name of Christ Jesus. Amen.